Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start with a story as we get into the book of James. Can I do that? And it's a um, kind of a short historical fiction type story that I think you guys might like. Settle in and envision some of the kind of imagine some of the settings here as we get into the book of James. It was a cool spring morning when Yaakov awoke to the unfortunate cry of a distant rooster. The sun had not yet risen in the east, but the city beneath him, already swollen to three times its normal population, was beginning to stir in anticipation of the coming holiday. Yaakov stood, he stretched, he gathered his few belongings and took a quick bite of the salted fish and stale bread he had brought with him for the breakfast. As the sun's rays began piercing the eastern sky just behind him, he could start to discern the outline of his final destination across the deep valley. Three days he had traveled from the north. Under tense political and economic times, he ran the risk of being in prison, robbed, beaten, or all the above. But alas, as the morning light began glinting off the golden eastern gates, he knew it was time to make his descent. The city was stirring, and he longed to make Morning, make it to, to morning Tamid prayers and offerings. He chose this place to rest for the night as it holds a special place in his heart. This mountain, flanked in ancient olive trees, is where his older brother gave one of the greatest sermons of his ministry and from where he ascended into his glory. A tinge of guilt swept over him as he began pondering the miracles, stories, and parables that he had missed. He was not one of the inner disciples of his brother. Frankly, he didn't want to be. It was not until the last months of his time here did he truly come to believe and see with his own eyes that his brother was the Mashiach that was promised to our ancestors so long ago. He carefully descends the dimly lit trail and mutters the morning Shema as he does so. When he reaches the bottom of the valley, he takes a deep breath of the cool morning air and recites the first few verses of Psalm 23. Gam ki elek, begay salmevet, lo iyara, ki ata imadi, shivtecha, umish anetecha, hema yanachmuni. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He had been reflecting this morning on the words of his own letter to the believers. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. His letter was one that he was hesitant to write, but he knew that any day might be his last. He needed to leave his brother's followers with counsel and advice on how to walk out their faith and get along. He was at some points in his leadership deeply discouraged to see even the followers of the great rabbi Yeshua quarreling amongst themselves over even trivial aspects of scripture. This valley that he now traversed is the same valley through which his ancient ancestor David fled in anticipation of his son Absalom's usurpation of the throne. This valley holds a great significance in the minds of the Nazarenes as well, as it was not far from here that the great rabbi was arrested. Yaakov looks up at the great wall cresting the hill above him and thinks back, thinks back on the words that his brother cried out so long ago, 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you are not willing. See, your house is left to you, desolate. For I tell you, you not see me again until you say, Baruch, Abba, Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yaakov longs to see peace over the city of the great king. Maybe this year his brother will return and bring such peace. But he knows things must get much worse before they get better. He hits the trailhead leading up to the top of the mountain and begins his traditional recitation of the 24th Psalm. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not set his mind on what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. With his knees swollen from the three days journey and back stiff from the sleeping on the ground four nights in a row, Yaakov makes his ascent towards the eastern gate. The last of his salted fish and stale bread only further aroused his appetite, but he knows that after morning prayers, he will make a beeline for the market to buy some of the city's best date cakes and falafels. He can almost smell the olive oil heating up now. When he reaches the top of the hill, he finds the nearest mikveh, undresses, and descends into the cool water. He recites the bracha and submerges his entire body the three times needed to make oneself ritually clean. The cool water jolts him awake as he reflects on the last Sukkot he had with his brother, when he stood up and boldly proclaimed before all that were there that he was the living water. He remembers how embarrassed he was on account of his brother for making such a bold claim and feels a pang of guilt. If only he could go back and redo the time spent with him. As he emerges from the mikveh and collects his clothing, a young Sedukian attendant asks him, Are you not Yaakov, the one they call Hatsadik, the brother of Yeshu and the leader of the Nutzrim? Yaakov, fastening his sandals, simply nods in affirmation. The look of surprise on the young man's face quickly turns to horror as he runs off, presumably to warn his own leaders that the leader of the Nazarenes has indeed shown his face again this year for Passover. Yaakov enters the stairwell and tunnel leading up into Solomon's portico and is immediately greeted by a small remnant of believers and leaders of the way. The first to greet him was his old friend Kepha. Shalom, achi, mashlomcha. How was your rest on the mountain? Did the coyotes find you out there all alone? Yaakov chuckles and shakes his head. You know, I have a perfectly good bed in my cousin's home ready for you when you come to town. Yaakov preferred the isolation and simplicity of sleeping outdoors over the attention and the fanfare that comes along with being a guest in someone's home. Yes, yes, I know, dear Kifa. Thank you. I am not one to burden others with my presence. And besides, I like to retrace the steps and the events of my brother's last few nights as if I'm there with him. It helps me feel connected to him once more. Yes, yes, I understand, Kepha replied. But this is why you age twice as fast as the rest of us. The laughter of the small group of men was interrupted by the blowing of the silver trumpets and the call to the morning shakarit prayers. As they quickly made their way to the court of the Israelites, James kept the thought of his arrest warrant in the back of his mind. Maybe I can make it through the morning prayer service without any trouble, he thought to himself. As the crowds gathered, the men in the assembly hall of the temple began wrapping their tefillin and reciting the morning prayers as the last of the morning tamid offerings before Passover was offered up on the altar. The crowds were unbearably larger than what was typical 
And Yaakov knew this may offer him more protection and anonymity. His eyes darted around as he tried to focus on the prayers. Melech Ozer Baruch Adonai Magan Avraham. His gaze wandered up to the pinnacle of the Antonia fortress to the north. There he could see staring down at the foreign ritual, Albinus, the new Roman procurator, recently sent to Judea after the untimely death of Festus. Albinus had come to Jerusalem knowing that if the fires of revolt were to spread, they would spread from here and on this holiday. As a new Roman governor, he was bound and determined to do whatever it took to prevent such a calamity. Such a revolt or riot would damage his new untainted reputation. These were dark times for Jerusalem, and they were dark times for his people. They were dark times for the sect of the Nazarenes. The prayers and the Tamid offerings were ended, and the crowds began to disband. Yaakov's stomach growled. Kepha, what do you say we go find some breakfast and meet with the other believers, my friend? But it was at this moment that Yaakov felt a leather strap be thrown and tightened around his neck. And for a split second, horror and panic swept over him as he realized this was his last few moments of freedom. The other leaders of the Nazarenes turned and looked in astonishment at their leader and the brother of their Lord being arrested. Run! Yaakov was barely able to chokingly utter his plea to his fellow laborers in the faith. As the crowd of worshipers and leaders of the way ran in all directions, Yaakov was slammed to the ground, slammed to the hard stone pavement. The knee of the large temple guard went into the small of his back, and he cried in pain but was thankful to be able to take a breath of air. He looked across the neatly polished and well-worn granite floor of the temple court and saw the feet of one man walking towards him and immediately knew it was the feet of Ananias, the Kohen Gadol. Yaakov was brought up to his calloused and aching knees, the smoke still billowing from the altar in the background, and Ananias approached Yaakov in the now completely empty courtyard. Yaakov Hatsadik, welcome, welcome. And Ananias' mocking tones echoed across the gold and granite colonnade of the Beit Hamikdash. I heard through a little sapor that you were in town. Tell me, haven't you yet realized that your case is over? Your brother is dead? He is not returning. Yet here you are, still coming into the holy city to cause trouble and to spread such heresy. Yaakov remembered the line of the letter he had written to his fellow believers just five years prior. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It sounded so good on paper, didn't it? Ananias walked up within a few feet of Yaakov. The guard stood him to his feet with the belt still snug around his neck and his hands tied behind his back with a coarse rope. Yaakov knew that outside the temple gates, dozens if not hundreds of Yeshua followers were beginning to gather and pray for him. I have for a very long time wanted to speak to you, Yaakov. Yaakov, still not responding, allowed the priest to go on. We beg of you, Yaakov. Restrain the people here, for they are going astray in regards to this Yeshua, as if he were the Messiah. I need you to persuade all that have come to the feast of Passover concerning Yeshua, for we all have confidence in you. For bear you witness, as do all the people, that you are pious and you do not respect persons. Do you therefore persuade the multitude not to be led astray concerning this Yeshua, this false Messiah? For the whole people and all of us also have confidence in you. Yaakov nods. 
Stand therefore upon the pinnacle of the temple, that from that high position you may be clearly seen, and that your words may be readily heard by all the people beneath you. For all the tribes, even the Gentiles, have come together on account of Passover. So they walked Yaakov up a series of stairs and up to the highest pinnacle of the temple complex, the same pinnacle his brother was taken to when being tempted by Satan. He looked out across the city as smoke rose from hundreds of houses, and he can now clearly see the morning sunlight in the morning sunlight children running through the streets of the old city. He scanned the horizon and could make out the very spot on the opposite mountain from where his brother stood and proclaimed, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling everyone about me in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It seemed like yesterday he watched his brother ascend into the clouds above them. He looked down beneath him now. It must have been a 60 to 70 foot drop to the streets. A crowd of hundreds quickly gathered. His eyes hastily scanned the growing crowd for any familiar faces. He knew many of the people were followers of Yeshua, yet he knew that the leadership of, the, of Judea and the party of the Sedukim were fed up with rebellions and heretical sects. This year was different, and he could sense a deeper tension that was in the air. Go ahead, say it and you live. Tell the crowds to simply turn from Yeshua and you can live to see your old age. Yaakov gathered his strength. He took in a deep breath and prepared to speak. His mind raced. He was calmed, though, by the thought of his own letter. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Life means going on to share the message his brother taught. Death means being united with him in his suffering. In his loudest voice possible, he proclaimed, why do you ask me concerning Yeshua, the son of man? He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. The crowd, amazed at his words, responded, Hoshiana to the son of David. And within seconds, and in a fit of rage, Ananias rushed toward the bound Yaakov perched upon the temple wall, and with all his strength he shoved him off. Time seemed to stand still as Yaakov fell the 60 or 70 feet to the street beneath him. The crowds gasped as they watched their leader and the pillar of their faith fall to the ground beneath him. As Yaakov landed, he was mortally wounded but did not die. With his thin, frail body bound and his legs broken from the fall, he knew his end had come. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The temple guards, accompanied by the high priest and other members of the Sedukim, raced out. Realizing he was still alive, they hurled stones at him and clubbed him to death. The Roman cavalry smashed through the crowd of horrified onlookers and religious leaders and quickly disbanded the disturbance. They beat anyone within reach with whips and clubs. Left lying on the street was the lone body of a pious Jew, Yaakov Bar Yosef, who committed no crimes, yet held firmly to the belief that his older brother, Yeshua of Nazareth, was indeed the promised Messiah of Israel. His body was later secretly moved to a tomb near the base of the Mount of Olives. It would later be placed into the traditional ossuary and the following Arama Aramaic inscription, Yaakov bar Yosef, Achi de Yeshua. Jacob, the son of Joseph, the brother of Yeshua, was inscribed on it. 
If he were to have any say, however, it would instead read, Hayeved de Yeshua, the servant of Yeshua. That ossuary in its inscription would later be found in the Arab, modern Arab village of Siloane 2,000 years later and sold onto the black market until finally making it into the hands of the Israeli antiquity authorities and placed on display at a variety of museums worldwide. Yaakov's letter would make it into the hands and be read by billions of people worldwide. His faith and his legacy would outlive the party of the Sadducees. It would outlive the city of Jerusalem and it would outlive the temple. It would outlive the Roman empire. This short practical letter we now call the epistle of James is often thought to be some of the last words of teaching the younger brother of Yeshua would leave us. Turn in your Bibles to James 1, if you have one. Why did I pick James to study through? Why did I pick James? Unlike the letters of Paul, James is not a theological book. There isn't a lot of deep theological insight in this book and explanation about, you know, the the Godhead or about, um, you know, the law, are we under the law, are we not under the law, circumcision, you name it. And Paul goes into some deep stuff, right? James is just like, do this, don't do this. Very practical, very simple to understand. And I like that. Not that I dislike Paul's letters. I love Paul's letters. But this is so simple that even someone who is extremely new in the faith can grasp and understand and apply to their lives. But who was James? As you, we just read in the short story there. James was the younger brother of Yeshua. And um, much to the Catholic Church's chagrin, um, Mary did go on to have more children and have them in a very natural way. But James was one of many of Yeshua's siblings. We don't know much about him and we don't see him show up on the scene during Yeshua's earthly ministry. We only see him arise to a place of prominence and leadership within our movement really in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15 um, explicitly and specifically, we see him as probably the leader of the sect known as the way. We know that he wrote this letter somewhere in the 50s, but we aren't sure exactly the date of the composition. We know that it had to come before his death, obviously, and many people, most people believe that he died in the year 62. The events of that story I just read would have happened in Passover of 62. So we think that this letter was written sometime in the 50s. So about 20 years post the death, burial, and resurrection of his brother. And we do know through historical accounts and the writings of Josephus and other prominent historians at the time that James was indeed cast from the pinnacle of the temple wall and then later stoned to death as he hit the ground and did not die. He was called James the Just or James Hasadik. Um, He has maybe even made it into some of the mainstream Jewish liturgical prayers. But I've always liked James, like I said, because it reads like if you've ever heard of the Mishnah and you ever heard of the first portion of the Mishnah called Pirkei Avot, it reads like a messianic Pirkei Avot. And James had some major influences on his writing style. And you're going to hear this as we begin to read. James was largely influenced by what we just studied all throughout Passover, the book of Mishlei, book of Proverbs, right? It's a lot of Proverbs that are strung together and woven together. And he's just going to kind of ream them off one at, one at a time. They're also greatly influenced by his older brother, Yeshua. 
And you're going to see and you're going to hear a lot of Sermon on the Mount kind of language as he begins to speak and teach through his letter. And um, we're going to continually go back to those those prominent influences in his writing. You know, Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant movement, um, you know, he nailed the 95 theses on the door of the church in, uh, in Gutenberg, Wittenberg. Somebody correct me. I'm confusing the two. Why? Um, in 1517, he started what is now called the Protestant Reformation. Well, Luther kind of had this, um, his own canon of scripture that he wanted to create. And Martin Luther set out to kind of reorder and possibly add or take away certain books of the Bible from the traditional Catholic canon. And he was approached, he approached the book of James. He said that it's unlike uh, the books of Paul. He considered the books of Paul to be very weighty, very important. But he called James the straw-y epistle, the straw-y epistle, the one that isn't very deep, the one that isn't very uh, weighty in his mind. And um, he was even hesitant to even include it in the canon of scripture that he wanted to create. He considered it a little bit too... um, to works based, which we'll get into later because Luther was uh, very much trying to buck the, the uh, understanding of the Roman Catholic Church at the time that you had to pay indulgences and you had to go before a priest and confess your sins. And, and Luther wanted to get as far away from that as he could. And he saw James as being too closely related to that. But we're going to see that that is completely in line with the expectations that our rabbi Yeshua set forth for us. So with that, let's go to James 1 verse 1. It says from Yaakov. Now let's pause here. Your Bible probably say James. Um, James is the tra- transliteration over about two to three languages of Yaakov. His name in the original text when he was speaking with his contemporaries was Yaakov, which is we would better translate that to Jacob. Right. He was named after one of the forefathers. It'd be like, you know, how many people are named George right after George Washington or um, Robert after Robert E. Lee in the South or something like that. You know, it's very common at the first century and even now to this day to name your children after great prominent forefathers of your people. So he was named Yaakov, Yaakov, which means the grasper of the heel, right? Um, Jacob. So it says Yaakov, a slave of God and of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Now let's pause here. Why doesn't he, if it were you and I, maybe we would start this letter off saying Yaakov, a brother of Yeshua, right? But what does he say here? He's like, I am a slave of Yeshua. Now, if you have a brother in the room, how many of you would identify as a slave of your sibling? (laughs) Right? None of us, right? We'd be like, no, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a slave of my older brother. Right? But it speaks of James' faith and trust and his belief in Yeshua, his older brother as Messiah and Lord. It says, Yaakov, a slave of God and of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, to the 12 tribes in the diaspora. Now, is this letter to us? Sort of. Maybe by extension. Who is his original audience? The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, let's pause here because if he's writing this in the 50s AD, there's a problem because the 12 tribes of Israel are not in the land of Israel. It's a very complicated situation. There are representation and uh, representatives of the different tribes in the land of Israel at the time. But all the 12 tribes are not there. The, the idea of all 12 tribes living in the land and dwelling in the land in peace is, is something reserved for the Messianic era, 
when the Messiah would gather in all of the 12 tribes, if you remember, uh, Jacob had 12 sons, right? And they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, over the course of time, as you see on our map here, we have two main exiles, two main exiles in Israel's history. The first would occur in 722, and that is this purple line right here. And that was as Israel over time broke into a north and a south. Predominantly, the northern tribes were carried away into exile. And some fled south into Judea, but they were carried north and east because east is always a picture of what? Exile. Yeah, east is always a direction away from God's presence. And they're carried away into it. That's called the Assyrian captivity or the Assyrian exile. 722 BC. That happens. Okay, now let's fast forward to 586. The Babylonians come in. They take the southern portion of the people of Israel, what we became called the kingdom of Judah. They take that away into captivity 586 years <coughs> excuse me, before the birth of Yeshua. Now, we know from the writings of like Ezra and Nehemiah that the Babylonian captivity was reversed but the Assyrian captivity was not reversed. There wasn't this cataclysmic event which enabled the, the northern kingdom of Israel to return. <coughs> Sorry, I'm coughing into the microphone. So in James's mind, that is an event that is still yet to happen. The regathering of all 12 tribes and the unification of the 12 tribes in their land, in their ancestral homeland. So it's interesting here that James is writing this letter, however, to the 12 tribes. And he says that they are in the diaspora. Now, this is a Greek word, diaspora, and it, it has a connection. It's an agricultural term more than anything. It has a connection to, how many of you ever um, planted lettuce before? Do you, you know, lettuce seeds are super, super, super tiny. Do you take each little lettuce seed and plant it in a little hole and then cover it up? What do you do? You diaspora them. You cast them out. You broadcast them. And that's the idea of diaspora or diaspora. And the people of Israel are seen to be like these seeds that are thrown out. And they're thrown out into the land. And then they will, when they remember and repent and come back to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will then want to return to the land. Oh, thank you for the water. Yeah, I got some water too. I just can't stop talking long enough to drink it. They will return to the land. And, um, and in so bring that harvest in with them. So he's saying, he's acknowledging that our people are still in diaspora, the diaspora, right? And here he's going to start his letter off. He goes, shalom or peace. Regard it as all joy, my brothers, when you face various kinds of perosmus. For you know that the perosmus of your trust produces perseverance. Now, your translation probably says temptations, right? Raise your hand if it says temptations right there. Okay. Now you might read this and you think, wait a second. Um, does God, does God tempt us? Like we said in, um, in, in the Lord's prayer in Matthew six, who uh, do not lead us into temptation. That's the same Greek word, parosmos and parosmos. It comes from the Greek word parazo, parazo. And it means literally to put on trial. Like you have a alleged convict. You take that convict and you put them on trial. That's the essence of this Greek word. We face various kinds of like trials, I think is maybe a better translation. God does not lead us. Like if you have an addiction to some chemical thing or, or whatever, he's not going to like, 
here, let me put this in front of you and see if you fall for it. No, he's going to, we're going to undergo trials in our faith though. We're going we're gonna, to, we're, we're examined and see how solid our faith is. And verse three says, for you don't, for you know that the parosmas of your test, uh, of your, of your trust, it produces perseverance, but let the perseverance do its complete work so that you may be complete and whole lacking in nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask it of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I said this during Sukkot, one prayer that you will never see go un- un- unanswered in your life. You know, I've prayed prayers before that have gone unanswered. Many of the prayers I pray go on unanswered. But a prayer for wisdom, for some reason in my life, never goes unanswered. And oftentimes it's answered by wise people around me. And that's Proverbs fifteen twenty two. right? Seek a multitude of counsel. Verse six, but let him ask in trust, doubting nothing for the doubter is like a wave in the sea being tossed and driven by the wind. Indeed, that person should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord because he is double-minded and he's unstable in all his ways. Let the brother in humble circumstances boast about his high position. Now this pause because James is doing something that is counterculture to this day and age. And even that day and age, really our human nature is that we get something and we brag about it, right? We get a pay raise, we brag about it. We get some, we come to some money, we brag about it. And we brag about it in different ways. We can just outright say it, hey, I got a lot of money. Or, you know, or we can do it in more subtle, subversive ways. Like, check out my, my new threads, right? <laughs> or check out the bling that I got or whatever, my car or whatever. Um, we can do it in different ways. And you guys are like, man, Gabe, you're being so cringy right now. <laughs> But he's saying, if you are in a humble position, then you should brag about that. You should brag about that. And it says, um, but let the rich brother boast about his being humbled since like a wildflower, he will pass away. For just as the sun rises in the morning and it dries up the plant so that its flower falls off and its beauty is destroyed, so too the rich person going on about his business will wither away. I cannot stress this enough. And this is just a simple, simple truth that monetary wealth, status, and all of that stuff, it means nothing in the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing. What means something, and the more scripture that I study and the more that I learn from God's word, the more I realize it boils down to just one thing how we treat and interact with our brothers and our sisters, our fellow human beings. That's the gist of it. But so often religious men, they get a little bit of piety, they get a little notoriety, they get a little attention, and they kind of puff their little chest out a little bit, and they get prideful in that, right? God forbid. Because they will just pass and wither away. Verse 12. How blessed is the man who perseveres through the parosmas, there's that word again, the trials, For after he has passed the test, he will receive as his crown the life which God has promised to those who love him. No one being tried should say, I'm being tried by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And God himself doesn't tempt anyone. Rather, each person is being tried whenever he is being dragged off and enticed by the bait of his own desires. 
So there's this concept within Judaism called the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination that's in every human being. That we have this inclination in us all to want to do something that is contrary to God's word. Do you think that's true? Yes. I think so. Maybe it is with me, for sure. So those, that evil inclination in us all, which Satan seizes and uses to his advantage, it produces in us, if we understand this correctly, temptation or trials. And then we have a decision to make. It's basically how we respond. How do I respond in this trial? Do I curse the, the, the giver of all that is good? Do I fall for this temptation and go for it? Just throw everything in for it? He says, then having conceived the desire, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death, right? Because John says the wages of sin is death. Don't delude yourselves, my dear brother. Every good act of giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father who made, every, uh, made the heavenly lights. With him, there's no variation or change in darkness caused by turning. Having made his decision, he gave birth to us through a word. Now, what does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the word, right? And it can be relied upon in order that we should be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Therefore, my dear brothers, let every person be quick to listen. Come on, Gabe, you need that. Slow to speak. Oh, I need that right there. And slow to get angry. Ouch. Now, if I could just, when I see a group of people, walk up to them, especially at work. This happens at work, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. We walk up, and we're not around a lot of people here, like from DMF, so we don't, we don't watch our behavior a little as closely as we do around here. And we walk up, and then someone's talking trash about the boss, or someone's talking trash about this, or they're going on and telling this joke or that joke. We're looking at stuff on their phone and you have a propensity to walk up, right? And what do you do? Your tongue starts to twitch. <laughs> and you're like, oh man, yeah, I don't like that person either, right? You're thinking these things and then it's just kind of like diarrhea of the mouth, it comes out. And you're like, man, I shouldn't have said that. Because James just said that I am deluded. I'm deluding myself. I'm fooling myself if I cannot control my tongue. And then sometimes we get angry, don't we? <laughs> sometimes we're really quick to get angry. I can remember, I, I haven't really struggled as much lately, but a temper. Like when I would get angry, circumstances that were beyond my control because I have a propensity to want to control. I would throw things. I would hit things, kick things, especially as a teenager. I would, I would get angry and I was quick to get angry. Now notice here, he doesn't say don't get angry, right? What does he say? Be slow to anger. Sometimes anger is righteous, but it's got to be slow to get there. Sometimes I get angry and I get, sometimes I get home and I think about things or I think about someone who wronged someone else or cheated someone else or stole from someone and I get angry over that. And that's a righteous anger. But it says a person's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Verse 21, so rid yourselves of all vulgarity and obvious evil and receive meekly the word implanted in you that can save your lives. Don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the word says, but do it. And there's a lot of people in the Messianic movement and it really all Christian faith who they like to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn, right? It's like an idolatry of knowledge. 
And it's like, they come to me and they're like, hey, can you teach this? Or, you know, did you know this? And I'm like, yeah, uh, but what are you going to do about it? What, what does that compel you to want to do? You know, how does that change your life? How does that draw you closer to Messiah? I don't know. For whoever hears the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, who looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. I remember, um, <laughs> how much time do your kids spend in the mirror <laughs> every day? You know, maybe sometimes not enough, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you got like a booger hanging on you. <laughs> I remember, uh, a, one of the things that made me really nervous about teaching middle school was that middle schoolers will tell you when they have a, when you have a booger hanging out of your nose. One of the things that made me more nervous about teaching in this setting is that you guys won't tell me I have a booger hanging out of my nose. But um, I remember uh, my, my dad used to say uh, to, to my older brother, he'd be like, John, if you spent as much time looking in God's word as you did the mirror, you'd be a different person. But I remember one time we had this, um, we were living, uh, when I was in high school, we had this mirror going out of our front door and it was where we'd like hang uh, keys and stuff, you know, like things we'd hang, we'd walk in the house. There's a big three foot long mirror with little hooks on the bottom of it. We would hang our, our, you know, whatever things. And, uh, every time I'd walk out, you know, I'd go out to hang out with my friends or something. I would grab my keys. And what do you think 16 year old Gabe Rutledge did? I would look in the mirror, look at myself. And I remember one time my mom was sitting off on the side and dining room table. And uh, she saw me, I don't know if she saw me do that or what, or just maybe saw a pattern there, or just saw a spirit in me that was kind of vain and conceited and focused on my external appearance. And she said, Gabe, let me ask you something. And I'm about to walk out the front door, you know, maybe I'm going to the Waffle House or something. She's like, if something happened, something drastic happened to your face, would you be the same person? And I was like, what? And she's like, if something happened to your face, would you be the same person that you are right now? And I was like, yeah. You know, in that 16-year-old voice, yeah. <laughs> All the parents looked at their 16-year-old right now. I'm like, that's you. So I get in the car, and I'm driving my uh, 1990-something Isuzu Trooper down the highway. I'm actually going down Highway 90, heading towards Chipley. And um, I'm behind this minivan. And... All of a sudden, in a split second, I see a large rock, maybe about two to three times the size of a golf ball, coming at my face through the windshield. And it hits the windshield directly in front of my face. And I'm going about 65, 70 miles an hour down Highway 90. It hits the windshield in front of my face and actually sends shards of glass. They hit my face and actually go into my mouth. And obviously I immediately like start swerving and I slam on the brakes and pull over. And um, the rock is gone, it had rolled off somewhere, but I guess the minivan I was behind, it kicked up this rock and it threw it and it landed right there, just you know, 10 inches from, from my face. And I sat there in the car and whose words do you think immediately came to my mind? <laughs> Gabe, if something happened to your face, would you be the same person you are right now? And I was scared. I was scared in that moment because, number one, my mom must be speaking to God, and I live with her, and that's terrifying. And, and, and number two, I had to ask myself and really deeply search, am, would I be the same person? And honestly, the answer was no. And I don't know if the answer is yes today, but the answer was no. I would not have been the same person. 
But I did that thing. I always looked in the mirror, right? But if I, and maybe you as well, look in God's word as much as you do a mirror, how would that change you? He says, it's like looking in a mirror and forgetting what you look like. That's what crazy people do, right? I don't know what I look like. (laughs) Try this. Walk past a mirror in any department store and try not to look at the mirror. (laughs) It's funny. It's like human nature. You want to be real fast. Look at yourself. But it's funny. We just so focus on how we look sometimes, aren't we? And he says, but if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, which gives freedom and continues becoming not a forgetful hearer, but also a doer of the work it requires, then he will be blessed in all that he does. Anyone who thinks he is like a religious person and religiously observant, but he does not control his tongue, he is deceiving himself. And his observance counts for nothing. Goodness, that is heavy, right? So what does controlling your tongue look like? It's just keeping your mouth shut, right? And not only that, like the next level up from controlling your tongue and keeping your mouth shut, you know, like remember years ago I taught about the thumper principle? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all, right? Thumper from Bambi. You're like, wait, whoa, this is deep. No, it's just Bambi. It's just Bambi. Don't worry. But if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all, right? And it's like, I'm just trying to master that. Gabe Rutledge is just trying to get control of his tongue. But the next level up is like then speaking life to people. If I can control my tongue and actually speak encouragement in life and edification to people around me, then I'm like, ah, oh, I've made it to the next level, right? But it's so hard for me to control my tongue. You know, in ancient Jewish thought, your tongue would actually uh, bring you disease. That you could speak enough evil about someone or people around you that it would actually cause the walls of your home to begin um, accumulating this, this stuff in Hebrew we call sara'at. And it's unfortunately translated in English as leprosy. It's not leprosy. Sara'at would begin to appear on your walls. And if you kept up your lashan hara, your evil speech about someone, it would then appear on your clothing. The leprosy would get on your clothing. And if you kept it up and you were unrepentant, it would then appear on your skin. And then it was visible. You could no longer hide it because you could always just uninvite people from your home. You could always change clothes. But once it's on your skin, you're an outcast from society. You can no longer be a viable member of the community and you have to be outcast. You're, you're someone who speaks evil. And that, that, that was the case. And remember, um, there's a, there's a series of people that, that, were, that were cured from Sarah'at in the Bible. Remember, Miriam was one of them, right? And why was she, why was she afflicted with Sarah'at? You remember that? She was speaking against Moses and his wife, right? She was speaking evil. And uh, remember, in Yeshua heals some lepers and he says, hey, uh, don't, go, don't go tell everyone. Go to the temple and do what is required of you by the Torah to cleanse yourself. What does the one guy do? He goes and runs his mouth, right? He wasn't quite healed of his inability to control his tongue, right? So there is a, there is a grain of truth there that your... Now, I, I believe Sarah'at is connected with the presence of the temple. If the temple is not here, I don't know that we will see Sarah'at. But I do believe that Sarah'at, like Proverbs says, life and death are in the power of the tongue, Right? And they can steer a ship. They can change history. Your tongue can. And he says, if you're a religious person and you can't even control that little muscle in your mouth, then you are tricking yourself. You're fooling yourself. But here is what pure religion looks like. Here is what pure, faultless faith in God the Father looks like. Care for orphans 
and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. Now we live in exile, so to speak. In Dothan, Alabama, we live in a predominantly Judeo-Christian cultures that we're surrounded by, right? And there's a, there isn't a lot of shenanigans going on. In it. But let's all transport, if you will, to Portland, Oregon right now. Yeah. Or let's, let's, go to, um, let's go to Los Angeles or South Beach, Miami. It's a little bit different world, right? And when you read these words to your kids, if you're living in that environment, don't be contaminated by the world. That has a lot more weight to it, doesn't it? Don't be contaminated by that. There are so many things that the world is trying to use to contaminate our children. And it's called assimilation. And it's hard. We have to strike this balance sometimes of being an inward focused community where we're insulating ourselves from the contamination of the world. But then also fulfilling the message of the gospel, which is looking outward and being evangelistic in our in our message and rubbing shoulders with people at work or at school and having to navigate conflict and disagreements and differences in faith and culture. And it's, it's this weird tension that we have. But he says that in the midst of that tension, you have to keep yourself from being contaminated. That is so tough. And I'm around, you know, working in the construction industry Every stereotype that comes along with construction workers, they are true. (laughs) Every stereotype, right? And I was sitting around in a group of plumbers yesterday. Um, They they flooded a house, one of my houses, and and I had to call them in and say, I need you to fix this because it flooded my house. And um, plumbers uh, open the car door and you just see a billow of smoke, um, which is probably the devil's lettuce. (laughs) <laughs> boiling out of the car and they come up there. Do you think they're happy to see me and get this call that they, they didn't do their job right? No, absolutely not. But um, you know what? Being kind and being frank, being honest with them, but loving and saying, I appreciate you guys coming out and doing this. But I did not allow myself to be contaminated by what they had to offer, right? Even though they would have loved that. And in a way, I used to, when I taught school, I would challenge, especially taught Christian school, I would challenge my students. Guys, one of the, one of the coolest things you can do, one of the most fascinating and, and, and like prolific things you can do to make history is to be counterculture for the sake of the gospel. We have enough people in the world that are counterculture in the sense that they like... Um, they, they dress weird or they, they're into like the, the, the goth stuff or punk rock stuff or, you know, like we have enough of those people. Really, we do. And you're honestly down inside, like you're not trying to be counterculture. You're just trying to fit into some clique. You're just trying to wear some kind of different uniform. Really, at the end of the day, that's all it is. You're not trying to really buck any cultures. But what a brave person does, what a courageous person does is they be completely counterculture for the sake of the gospel. And that's not what you put on. That's not how your hair is styled. It's not what kind of music you listen to. It's about how you interact with other humans and your unwillingness to compromise on your faith and your standards and your values. People over time will look at that courage. They will look at that, that principle that you have as a young adult or as adults. And they will over time, they'll first, they'll ridicule it. And they'll say, oh, you got to fit into one of our cliques. You got to fit in and put on one of our uniforms. But over time, they'll see your courage 
and how you stand on what you believe and you're uncontaminated by that and they'll say, there's something different about that. I don't have that kind of courage and that kind of boldness. I want that. And they'll begin to admire you. And I challenge young adults in this room to live that kind of courage. Live that kind of courage. Don't just look for another clique or another uniform or another subculture that you can fit into. That gets old over time. And those people and those cliques and that uniform, it eventually is just going to let you down and it's going to leave you disappointed. But God's word and the gospel of Yeshua will not. It is timeless and unchanging. You just got to have courage. So with that, let me close in prayer. And then we've got about five minutes. I want to learn from you guys what you learned from James 1. Let's, let's pray. Abba Father, I thank you for everyone in this room who challenged me in my faith. And I thank you for James who wrote this amazing letter to us that even 2,000 years later, we can read it, we can study it, and we can glean so much from it that is so applicable to today. I thank you and praise you for Yeshua who bled and died on our behalf. May we courageously and boldly proclaim this message to those around us. In Yeshua's name I pray, amen. 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 Guys, do you have any thoughts, any lessons that you learned from James 1? Just shoot your hand up or just... Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut, yeah, yeah. I feel like you were talking to me that time. He always tells me that. Oh, okay, I thought you were going to tell her she needs to keep her mouth shut. I was like, man, Marvin, though. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Oh, the microphone's that's good. That's wise. Yeah, Lauren. Um, there's, there's a saying that says, uh, in order to become someone you're not, you must know in which you are not. Hmm. Um, and that kind of means like, dying to yourself, like we were talking about caring and suffering with Christ. Yeah. Um, and that's working with what he's been working on with me, is um, denying myself, denying myself. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes, like you mentioned, we get into these patterns of behavior. And some of you, it might be like simple, as simple as like, I'm going to lose 20 pounds this year. Well, you're not just going to lose 20 pounds. You, there's a cycle that has to break and change, right, in your life. Or it might be like, I want to memorize this portion of scripture. Well, what are you going to do to change a cycle? Um, you know, for me, it's like long distance running this year has like been my thing. And it's like, well, what am I going to do to be able to run a marathon next month? And what cycle am I going to break? Well, that cycle typically is sitting on the couch and drinking coffee at 530 in the morning. I need to be, instead of drinking coffee on my couch at 530 in the morning, putting on my running shoes, right? I need to wake up a little bit earlier, drink that coffee, put on running shoes. And I need to, something in my behavior needs to change to get me to the goal that I'm looking to attain. Make sense? But it takes a small little change and that change begets another change and that change begets another change. So, um, yeah, like you said, that you, have to, you have to change something about you in a small way to become who you want to be. And all that we should want to be is conformed to the likeness of Yeshua, right? Yeah, Michael and Natanya. Oh, go ahead. Whose name? Yaakov? Yeah, it's James's name, yeah. Uh, the grasper of the heel. Yeah, it comes from the root ekev, which means heel. The one who grasps the heel, yeah. Uh, Tanya? No. So, can you expand on kind of what would be some suffering that, um, Yeshua, that we would encounter? Like now? Yeah. Uh, not many. Um, 
I mean, maybe just like ostracization. ostracization. Uh, yeah, maybe verbal abuse, but that's like few and far between. If, I mean, if you maybe leave Dothan, Alabama and go, like uh, the last time I received verbal abuse was I was standing in the, the steps of the Supreme Court building praying in June for the ending of abortion in America. And there was a woman who was slinging insults at us. But I mean, I was there at the epicenter of that legal battle and Fortunately, it wasn't violent. So yeah, I think um, we're going to be get, we're going to continue to see a cultural shift uh, away from absolute truth, away from absolute and universal morality, and more into uh, moral relativism. And I think for the people that stand on absolute truth and stand on science and biology and those things that are unchanging, you know. Um, I believe that we'll receive potentially more. Because, I mean, if you look at Canada, for instance, right now, um, if I were to stand up here and say that I can't acknowledge the, f- the notion that you can identify whatever gender you want to identify as, even if you want to change that gender every single day, um, if I were to stand up here and say, no, that's false, in, in Canada, it's imprisonment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a matter of time. That's why I always say get out and vote, register to vote. Um, not that that's the savior and be all end all of what we do, but um, be politically involved, read your Bible, and vote for the person that best embodies the principles found therein. So, does that answer your question? So, yeah, that, that's just going to buy us a little bit of time, probably. Yeah. But yeah, Karen. Well, I, I found this really interesting about your topic. Um, okay, so this is what I, I found interesting. Um, Hey, marriage is hard, but divorce is hard, so choose your hard. Mm-hmm. Obesity is hard, fitness is hard, choose your hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, being in debt is hard, or being financially responsible is hard, mm-hmm. so choose your hard. Yeah, you yeah. So it goes on and on and on, communicating, blah, blah, blah. So, so basically, it's kind of like, we've got decisions that we can make. They may be hard, but the alternative is also hard, sometimes harder. Yeah. If you choose to walk in righteousness, which is really difficult, sometimes it's hard, but then the alternative is worse. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of like choose your hard. They're not, mm. Life is hard. Yeah. Choose your, choose, you know, if you have something hard to do, yeah. choose what's right. It's still going to be hard, but it's a better choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it may be that the easy one that we choose is delaying the it's just delaying the uh, the inevitable burden and, and pain but um i like dave ramsey says that maturity is defined by you your, your ability to put off for now what pleases you your ability to put off for now delay pleasure is that's the definition of maturity i thought that was good and that's it relates to our finances and everything as well but, all right any other thoughts or yeah crystal Oh, Crystal is the new backup singer for the Newsboys, by the way, if you, um, yeah. I tried so hard, I did, I was like, don't say, don't say, and then I Yeah, I'm messing with you.
praying during that rage, because I would be, I could be in such a rage that in my head I'm thinking, stop, stop talking. Why are you still stop? And I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And just getting into the practice alone of praying and asking for God to call me. Even that was a change that I think a lot of people don't realize is, is a habit we still have to get into. Even remembering yeah. to say, you know, I need help. God help me, please. And that was, you know, one of those changes that I started. And it really does help, but I had to learn to, mm. to ask. And yeah. getting in that habit, I think, especially new believers, they, they don't realize that it, it's a muscle we have to grow. Mm-hmm. Just asking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Megan. <coughs> Good for you. Yeah, and that that um that courage that you have to be counterculture and not 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 be um, pressured into how you behave, that will one day possibly, as you continue to be in a friendship with this person, be admired by this person as they are left kind of hopeless by their lifestyle. They'll look at Megan and be like, she has principle and courage, and I don't. How do I get that? You know. So be a person of courage and. But, no, yeah. Layla. The whole family's taking a turn. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what happened is um, Crystal posted a picture of, she went to a Newsboys concert and posted a, a video of her filming them. And I could hear her singing in the background. And I just, I, I commented on there, I hear, it sounds like Newsboys got a new backup singer. I was like, it sounds great, but I wasn't aware of this or something. Yeah, just embarrassed her. They're like a Christian band. All right, well, guys, we're going to wrap up. If you have any more thoughts or questions, uh, just come see me after we do the Aaronic Benediction. So if you want to go ahead and get ready for closing out with the Aaronic Benediction.